You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. If you are able to, please remain standing as we read God's word. Our text this morning is going to be Exodus 15. However, the actual Exodus event takes place in Exodus 14, so that's where we'll begin our reading this morning. Exodus 14, verses 21 through 28, and we'll move on to 15. Exodus 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword 
My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Why do we sing? You recall last week we established from the sermon in Ephesians chapter 5 that we sing certainly in praise of the one who gives us voice. And we sing praise to the one who gives us life. We sing praise to the one who saved us. And in a congregational setting, exactly like we are in now, we're being commanded to be filled with the Spirit and we sing to one another. We sing to one another, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in doing so, as the songs are rich in gospel truths, the ministry of the word goes forth. So why are we looking at Exodus? Why the song of Moses? Well, If you look at it, it establishes, the Exodus establishes the very paradigm or the pattern in which we see God in his redemptive work for his people. This event in history is a pattern in which we see God in his redemptive work for his people. The Exodus is the greatest act of redemption before the cross. And in the Exodus, God is acting fully in concert with his character and his nature. And he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Now, in looking at this passage, it's God himself, God condescending himself, even in his unmatched power. He lowers himself to show his hesed. Hesed. Anybody familiar with that word? It's it's Hebrew word. It means, it's Hebrew for his loyal, his faithful love, and it also means his tender mercy and his overwhelming grace to his very own people, his hesed. And in the song of Moses, it shows us the proper response of his people, who the Lord is 
and what he has done. Who the Lord is and what he has done. Now at this point, it's helpful for us to know and to remember what the book of Exodus is all about. Surely it's about the event that we just read about. But Exodus is really about God revealing himself to his people. God revealing himself to his people. Now you remember in Genesis, God had promised at the fall. He promised in the first gospel, the seed of the woman. The promised seed was to come and to save his people. And he had chosen Abraham to be the father of the line of that promised seed and to be the father of those who believe in the Messiah. And he gave a promise to give them the land, a land of their own. Now, two weeks ago, we'd ended our time in Genesis, and we were marveling at God who plots and he plans for our own good. He plots and he plans for our own good. And we learned that in his powerful and kind hand of providence, the Lord uses that which is meant for evil for good. That was abundantly clear in Joseph's words to his brothers. But then Genesis ended where Joseph died and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Where is that promise? Many generations and centuries later, the Israelites were still in Egypt. And through the fear of their host country, their existence was made horrible. They were suffering enslavement and they were suffering harsh working conditions and unjust punishments. Their lives did not reflect in any way the promise of God made generations earlier. They were not a nation by any means. They were being held as captive in another country and certainly not in a land of their own. Now, it's here that God reveals himself to Moses. And he does so in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And he says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And God reveals to Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people. And he has heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, God says. I know their suffering. And right off the bat, I want to tell you guys, I want to encourage you guys here, wherever you're at, good times and bad, God is not aloof. He's not detached from our suffering. He is a God who sees us. He's a God who hears us. He's a God who knows us our suffering. And in his hesed, in his steadfast love, the Lord says, I have come down. I have come down. I have come down for you. He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And through God appointing Moses to reveal who the Lord is to Pharaoh, Moses tells Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. But Pharaoh does not submit to the sovereignty of God. Instead, he hardens his heart. 
And through a series of multiple warnings, God still revealed himself to Israel's enemies in Egypt through the resultant plagues. And that brings us to this most significant revelation of the Lord in the deliverance of his people. We just read in Exodus 14 how the Lord not only saved his people, but he destroyed their enemies. And we have the response, the only true response of his people through the song of Moses here in our text this morning in Exodus 15. It's the song of Moses. The song of Moses has three stanzas. After all, it is a song, so I could say that. Three stanzas. The first stanza is who he is in verses two through three. The second is praising God for what he has done in verses four through 12. And the third is they're praising God for what he will do in verses 13 through 18. So immediately, immediately upon seeing the revelation of God through his deliverance in the Exodus, Moses and the people rejoice. They rejoice. He's ascribing glory to his name. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And so Moses begins his song in the first stanza. Look at verse 2 of Exodus 15. He says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And singing to the Lord and praising him for who he is. Listen, Moses is actually recognizing who he is not and who we are not. We are entirely incapable of saving ourselves. We know this. But it was the people of Israel who were crying out to God for help and it was the Lord who heard and delivered them from their enemy. The Israelites were not asking for strength to endure. They were not asking for strength to overcome. They needed a savior. And God, consistent with his past promises, did only what he can do because he is God. He is Yahweh. He's not a pagan God, but the one God true almighty God. And Moses sang the praise of the one who has revealed himself as the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so he rightly exalts him and praises him. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And he alone has delivered him, them from their enemies. The Lord is his name. Now here in the second stanza of the Song of Moses, they praise the Lord for what he has done. If you take a look at those verses, you have phrases like the Lord casting them into the sea. He's covering them in the flood. The Lord shatters the enemy. And in the previous uh, verse we read, the Lord is a man of war. What do we make of these actions, this violence? God is revealing himself as one who is compassionate and just. He hears their cry. He's revealing himself as one who is faithful and merciful. 
he sees their suffering. And he is the one who in his hesed, in his steadfast love, he will protect his own from the violence of the enemy. He protects his own against the violence of the enemy. You remember, it was the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in his obstinance towards God to say that he, Pharaoh, is the son of God. And that he, Pharaoh, not Yahweh, almighty God, the Lord, Pharaoh's going to determine the fate of his own people and the fate of these slaves. And it was Pharaoh who instituted genocide of the worst kind in ordering the drowning of all the newborn males of the Israelites. Even after Pharaoh let the Israelites go, he again hardened his heart and took his special forces, his elite army of chariots, 600 of them, and all the accompanying Egyptian forces, and he pursued a numerous but a defenseless people. And we have verse 9 to show us the presumptuous pride and the arrogance of Pharaoh. And it certainly echoes the tone of Satan himself in Isaiah's description when Satan rebelled against God in heaven and he, ex- he expressed his seven blasphemous I will statements. Look at verse 9 in our text. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, the presumptuous arrogance. He goes, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. It wasn't even a battle. The enemy didn't even stand a chance. Look at verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. It only makes sense that the next line in the Song of Moses is a praise of his holiness. There is no one like our God. Verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This The exodus, the unmistakable dramatic display of the power of God in saving his people, it serves to reinforce his very holiness. It serves to reinforce his very holiness. Especially in contrast to the the dead idols they had, the polytheistic, lifeless pagan deities of Egypt and the surrounding nations. Who else can drown an entire army? Who else can drown an entire army and save an entire nation all at once? Who can do that? At the command of nature and its forces, who can do that? Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He alone is holy. He alone is Lord. Now, as I mentioned, it's not just the pagan nation of Egypt that God revealed himself through his power to save and deliver his people. As the saying goes, 
Good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. Thank you. In the third stanza of the Song of Moses, in verses 14 through 16, we see what the surrounding nation's reaction was to the exodus. It was one of outright fear. The nations were seized with trembling. They were melting away. They, were, they had terror and dread falling upon them. They were almost lifeless. And it's quite understandable. Because if you consider that in one fell swoop, one unilateral action of God himself, there was no alliance, no coalition needed. The most powerful nation on the planet was reduced to ruins through the plagues. Think about that. And the elite forces of the most powerful army were drowned in an instant. And you can see why the nations were trembling. And like the Egyptian army, drowning like dead weight, the nations were just as lifeless. They were, as verse 16 says, still as a stone. But notice here in the preceding verse, in verse 13, the song speaks in the past tense. Past tense. But before we focus on that, I want us to look at the Exodus and the events that immediately followed that because it will shed more insight into what the last movement of the song of Moses has for us. So let's zoom back out a little bit. We know that through the Exodus, we're seeing the promise of God. And looking back at Genesis, even through the foibles of Abraham and Isaac, even through the deceit of Jacob, even through the enslavement of Joseph and a worldwide famine, and now in the book of Exodus, centuries of harsh oppression, slavery, and infanticide, we're seeing the promise of God come to fruition through the freeing of his people from Egypt and the destruction of their enemy. Notice this in Hosea chapter 11, the prophet says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I have called my son. The Lord viewed Israel like a son and the Exodus was a birth of a people. Now, D.A. Carson, he's helpful here. He says, through, the bring, through God bringing Israel out of Egypt, because although they were numerous, they were not yet a people, so he reconstituted them as a nation. He reconstituted them as a nation, and through the waters of judgment, they were born. And through God's grace in saving them, as they were in the wilderness, he further revealed his character to them by giving them the law, his Ten Commandments. And in doing so, they weren't to earn their salvation. You remember, they were already delivered from slavery in Egypt. But in obeying them, they were to reflect the character of God to the nations. Did you hear that? They had already been saved. They weren't working for their salvation. They were delivered from their enemy. But in obeying God's commands, they were able to, or the command was for them to reflect the nature of God, the nature of the God who saved them to the nations. They were to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. 
And as the Lord said quite explicitly, be holy, for I am holy. In this way, the people would be revealing to the nations the name of the Lord. Just as they were doing and singing the song of Moses, they were revealing who he is and what he has done. But as we know, Israel failed constantly. Through their rebellion, they came to reflect not the goodness and the holiness of God. They were not the image bearers they were created to be, but instead they imaged the distorted and the immoral state of the pagan nations around them. Unless we think the Israelites were fools and how they could walk away from so great a salvation, we need to be reminded that we too were walking aimlessly in this world. We were lusting after our own fleshly desires and following our own, following our own wisdom, which leads to death and destruction. We too were once children of wrath, dead in our willful rebellion and sin, subject to lifelong slavery to sin. But even through Israel's and our own rebellion and unfaithfulness, God has consistently shown his grace. He has shown his loyal love, his unwavering faithfulness. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter four, verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It was Christ, the true Israel, who had exhibited the beauty of perfection in his complete fulfillment of the law. It was Christ, the promised seed, in his perfect obedience to the Father that qualified him to be the only substitute for our sin. And it was Christ who was the express imprint of the exact image of God. As Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And it was Christ who through the waters of judgment, not of the Red Sea, as God had judged the enemies then, but the waters of the judgment of God the waters of the judgment of God for our sin, for our rebellion, for our treason against a holy God. It was Christ who bore the judgment of God on an instrument of judgment, that is the cross. In church, he did it in our place. Through the triune God's unilateral, unmatched power, he raised Jesus to new life, bringing many sons to glory adopting us through faith in who God is and what he has done. Jesus came to save us for our sins. He came to redeem us and to adopt us as his own. And like he did in the Red Sea and destroying Israel's enemies then, Christ redeemed us through the cross while simultaneously destroying our enemy, Satan. How does that happen? Look at, the, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The writer to the Hebrews says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
he, that is Christ, the true Israel, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is the devil. And, and deliver, that word there means to set free, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's us. We are the object of that love, of that act. Through Christ's death on the cross, he is our victory. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered Satan, sin, and death. And through his blood, he brings us into the presence of the Father. And through his resurrection, he conquered our adversary. Christ is our strength and our song. He is our salvation. Amen? So we come back now to our third stanza in the song of Moses. And I want us to see something in verse 13 that gave the Israelites a reason to sing. And even more so, it gives us a reason to as well. Now there's a significant aspect in verse 13 that completes It completes the redemption story that helps us to see the act of Christ's redemption on the cross, the gospel, is central to this. Now consider the reason as to why God had redeemed us. Certainly, it's for his glory and his alone. That's foundational to who God is. As we zoom out again and look at the creation story in Genesis, the purpose of God in creating Adam and Eve was to have them rule and to reign with God. But as Adam failed, Christ, the better Adam, had succeeded. God's plan of creation didn't end in Genesis, church, but in his plan of redemption, his creation continues. We who are in Christ are what? New creations. And like the Israelites, Though they're delivered out of Egypt at the time of the song of Moses, they're still not in the promised land. And so we too are not yet able to enjoy the presence of God in full. Now it's true. It's true that we have access to the Lord. In his presence there is a fullness of joy that the pleasures of this world cannot compare to. And it's true that because of Christ we can now enjoy intimate fellowship with the Father. And it's true that now we do have peace. We do have a restored wholeness with the holy triune God. That's ours through Christ. But the unfettered joy, the pleasures forevermore promised in Scripture, they're yet to be experienced in full. And here's what I mean. In the Exodus story, the high point of God being with his people, and you could read this in chapter 40, the high point of Exodus is God being with his people in his dwelling in the tabernacle, and he's filling it with his glory. But at that time, Moses was not able to enter in when the glory of the Lord was present. And likewise, we, though we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation, And through the blood of Christ, we are justified and we're able to enter into his throne of grace. We still cannot see God face to face. Why? 
because of the presence of sin. This is the already but not yet tension that we live in. We are saved and yet we are contending with the flesh and are in the process of being saved. And that process we know as sanctification. But here's what gives us confidence. Here's what gives us confidence. To navigate through the wilderness, as the Israelites did, to navigate through the Christian life, we're living in the already but not yet. Like the song of Moses, we sing his praises. We sing his praises for who he is. We sing his praises for what he has done, and we sing his praises for the promises that he gives. We sing his praises for what he will do. And that's precisely what's being sung in verse 13. Because of the Lord's hesed, and I'm saying that again because it's so multifaceted, it's deep and it's significant in its meaning. Because of his loyal and faithful love for his people, his kind and tender mercy for his redeemed, he leads us. And in his strength, the strength that is Christ alone, he guides us. And where does he lead us? Look at verse 14, excuse me, verse 13. Where does he lead us? To his holy abode. He leads us to his holy abode, the place where only he dwells. And this is sung in the past tense, as if it already happened. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Church, this is past tense because that is the certainty of the future promise of God's salvation based on his past revelation of deliverance and faithfulness. In other words, because the gospel is true, because the gospel is true, we are guaranteed a future inheritance that is secure and unwavering. Did you get that? Because the gospel is true, we are guaranteed a future inheritance that is secure and unwavering. So why do we sing? For the same reason the Israelites sang the song of Moses. There's an Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross. He puts it like this. It is God's intention that the revelation of himself that was accomplished in the events of deliverance from Egypt will forever shape the responses of his people. It's God's intention that the revelation of himself that was accomplished in the events of deliverance from Egypt will forever shape the responses of his people. We sing, certainly because of his holiness. And we sing because the gospel is true. And we sing because our worship of the one true God shapes us. It shapes us. And here's how. Reciting gospel truths, reciting the gospel realities that are put to song and having those truths repeated into our souls in a congregational gathering It's a holy means that conforms us to the truest thing about us. Reciting gospel realities put to song 
and having those truths repeated into our souls in a congregational gathering Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that's a holy means that conforms us to the truest thing about us. In singing God-honoring, gospel-rich songs, we are engaging in an action that the Spirit uses to conform us and each other into the very image of His Son. How so? How are we being conformed into the image of Jesus through congregational singing? We're not just singing, we learned this last week, me and Jesus, right? As the Spirit conforms us into Christ's image, we are seeking each other's interest above our own. We grow in no longer being so self-conscious that we're singing for the good of others, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ. Jesus is the perfect example Again, Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus sings on our behalf. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That is beautiful. Jesus Christ is singing in the midst of the congregation the praises of our God for us, for us. When we sing as a body of believers, we're becoming more like Christ and we're faithfully contributing to each other's destiny and hope. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? That destiny and hope, church, Romans eight twenty three tells us that that destiny and hope is the redemption of our bodies. You remember our secured future is secure precisely because of Romans chapter six. Paul says, we have been united in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. To be in our glorified resurrected bodies, we will be like Christ and we're gonna be able to see him as he is. Oh, glorious day. We sing praises to him for what he will do. And we will dwell with God and he with us. And church, we will enjoy his presence forever. Revelation chapter 21. Listen to our destiny. Listen to the promise of God and why we sing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, may we sing to God's glory and may we sing for the good of his people. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
you have revealed yourself as faithful and true, as holy and just, as righteous and kind. And you abound in grace and mercy. And Lord, in your steadfast love, you have continued your faithfulness to us, showing us in your word that in Christ, your promises are true and our salvation is secure. Lord, we pray that as we worship you in song, that you would receive our praise and that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we do, may we grow in trust and in faith in you because you alone are trustworthy. Lord, you alone are our light, our strength, and our song. We praise you. In Jesus' good and holy name we pray. Amen.